back to another episode of Me and Mr. 80s. I'm the me part, Nick, and that, for you audio listeners, I'm pointing to him right there, <laughs> is Mr. 80s. Hi, my name is Daryl, as I said in the very first one. No, I do not have another brother, Daryl. My mother, <laughs> God bless her, saddled me with this stupid name, and so I've made it my own, like Cher <laughs> or Madonna. And we're here for this second episode of this podcast. Uh, at the top of the show, I think I'm going to reiterate all of our information. Good idea. Since if this is the first show you're listening to, there's a show that you've missed. And if you want to find it, you can find the link by going to our blog page, which is mr80s.wordpress.com. You have to spell out Mr., but 80s is in numbers. It's a little confusing. So it's m-i-s-t-e-r-80s.wordpress.com. You can also hit us up on our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search on Mr. 80s, M-I-S-T-E-R space. Don't spell out space. Hit the space bar, <laughs> 80S. And if you want to get in touch with us, uh, email us at Mr80s at rocketmail.com. Once again, you should be used to the drill by now, M-I-S-T-E-R-80S. Uh, the first show, we talked about underrated debut albums. For this show, we're, call, we're calling it No Sophomore, No Sophomore Slump. No yes. Sophomore Slump. Nick, explain the concept in musical terms <laughs> of a sophomore slump. Well, the second album is usually where people tank it. <laughs> You've had your success. People have given you the accolades. You put out a second album and people go, what? the fuck was that? <laughs> Case in point, Condition <laughs> Critical by Quiet Riot. <laughs> yes, yes, that's a good good call. And uh, so these are bands that managed to, number one, keep it together <laughs> for their second album. So they had a successful and or critically acclaimed debut album, and then their second album did not completely suck eggs. Uh, or maybe even in a rare instance, it was even better yeah. than the first album, because that, that does happen. So Nick's got his list, I've got my list, and so we're going to dive right in. Let's start with you. What do you got? Okay. Um, I'll go with uh, a band that had a, had a good, solid first album, Counting Crows, and they had... Um, August and Everything After was the first album. Their second album was Recovering the Satellites. And uh, I loved the first album. I actually love both of the albums. But they, I think the, in, in the case of what you were just talking about, I think the second album actually is better than the first. Uh, I, uh, I liked their sound, which was a... Boy, um... Catchy pop rock with uh Which one was the Courtney Cox album? The Courtney Cox album? Wasn't there an album that had Courtney Cox in the video for one of the songs? Was that the first one or the second one? You know what? Um, I I think it might have been the second one, although I can't remember many of their and she was videos. Courtney, she was Courtney Cox by then, right? So that was stunt casting? <laughs> or was she still a struggling actress? Oh, no. She must have been famous by then. So, all right. Hmm, I wonder which... Uh, I I think there w- was something with a, a wintry theme. Is that... Um, am I thinking right on that? Maybe. <laughs> if those of you listening know, I am not thinking of Dancing in the Dark by Springsteen. I know she was in that one, too. But I distinctly recall some kind of Counting Crows, hmm. Courtney Cox connection having more to do with the fact than the double C's. Boy, I, Not her breasts. The, you know, the Courtney and the Cox and the Counting and the Crow. <laughs> Well, the um, were you a fan of either of the albums from there? I was going to get a little Gene Siskel on your ass, ooh, because I, I was never impressed <laughs> <laughs> with Counting Crows. Uh, Mr. Jones, it sounded like a guy having his toenails removed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, I can see that. But I, I recall there was one particular song on August and Everything After that I think I would hear playing, like when I was out with you and your brother, we played in the car. It was a more, maybe a more dirge-like, but it was like, it was really like one of those slasher wrists kind of a songs that I did <laughs> like, but I can't remember. Round anything. Here? That was a single, though, wasn't it? 
Um, possibly. I think so. That was on the first one? Yeah, that was the uh, lead track. I think the best song on there is actually the uh, uh, the last song called A Murder of One, which is a oddly uplifting song. So I think. Th- there were some songs on, because I heard the whole album, because you, you guys kind of played the shit <laughs> out of it back then. And there was some stuff on there that I liked, but Mr. Jones... Wow, that was just a lot to handle. Well, and you know, I, I kind of think that he kind of didn't appreciate his own song after that because I know once he once they started to become popular, he would change the lyrics of it, um, and started throwing in his own influences. Like, uh, I'm not going to remember the lyrics on it, but uh, it was something where uh, something about adding in. Uh, we all want to be big stars, mm-hmm. but there, he would throw in. We all wanted to be big star because he wanted to throw in an oh. Alice Chilton reference right. and all that kind of stuff. So he was trying to, you know, change the song around so that it kind of was a little more hip and a little less cloying. That always kind of reminded me of of Stand by REM because that's another song that I just I thought was a, an absolute audio abortion. <laughs> Mr. Jones is kind of in that category for me. <laughs> oh, audio abortion. That's a great one. <laughs> but anyway, we're not even talking about the first album. We're supposed to be talking about the second album, which I know very little about other than this faint memory of Courtney Cox. So what else? What else about um, re- Reclaiming the Satellites? Uh, recovering the recovering Satellites. Recovering the Satellites. Uh, basically, they were a little more... Um, Folksy on the first album, um, a little more sparse production. So if you think of like Round Here or um, even something more jangly like Rain King off the first album, they're catchy and um, maybe more acoustically guitar based rather or, you know, not really crunchy guitar. Yeah. And I think they really uh, upped everything on the second album. And, you know, the kind of like that whole uh, scream concept where you know he was kind of telling you you know what you do for a sequel you remember scream that scream the movie scream the movie another Courtney Cox connection oh my gosh that's crazy um but he was you know kind of telling you how what it is to be a sequel and you, you kind of can apply some of those things to uh, an album sequel where you know you it's bigger it's more production you know everything's more over the top and more done and i think this is more of everything, but I think it's done really well. I mean, obviously the singles. It, uh, it, so like, you're saying that it worked instead. It of was becoming, over the top, but it was becoming, done instead of becoming self-parody. Exactly, which is often the risk. Exactly, and where a lot of people fail in their sophomore, you know, when they ramp everything up, there's a bigger ramp to fall off of. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I don't think they did with this one. The singles like Angels of the Silence. Daylight Fading, um, I think a long December. I think that might have been the one with Courtney Cox. Yes, although that sounds that frankly, sounds I'm about right. totally not sure. Um, but Would it be it, wrong to say that Train oh, is the post millennial Counting Crows. God, I hope not. Because <laughs> I hate Train. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, I don't like Train at all. Um, so I, I would say, I would say no to that. I would say that there's, um, just curious, but someone who's not me might say yes. (laughs) They have a lot of, uh, it was, it was known for the singles, but it should have been because some of the singles were kind of big, but I would say that they kept the sophomore slump off because they really made the entire album. Worth listening to. So, in terms of artistic achievement, you think that they they avoided the sophomore slump. But in terms of of sales and critical acclaim, wasn't it considered a disappointment from the debut? I thought I remembered that hmm. that it was less successful in terms of units moved, in terms of popularity of singles. Well, which I think a big mistake was the fact that the very first single, if if indeed it is the Courtney Cox video, that it was a dirge. <laughs> and I, a, a lot of times, bands kind of. If the, if the first single isn't upbeat, they never recover, and I think that's kind of what happened with this album. Well, I was thinking that the first single was "Angels of the Silence," which is a much more up-tempo, rocky song. And I have no memory of that song at all. Um, although I do, I, 
they started their tour, and I think it was for this album, at Blossom, the amphitheater I used to work at. And, uh, hmm, I guess I, I, I can say this on, on, a, on a podcast because I'm pretty sure no one can sue me now, but they started it here uh, when I worked backstage. Uh, I used to have to do, uh, I was a PA, so I was running around for rock stars. Not a public and address system. <laughs> what, what does PA stand for? Production, Production assistant. assistant. Yes. And I had to take him, and uh, uh, Adam Dirtz, and his manager to see a throat doctor. And I was told that I was not allowed to tell anyone that if uh, that where I was going, who I was talking to, and that if he was not cleared by this throat doctor, that they would cancel the show and the tour. Wow. Yes. I think I recall you mentioning that, that he was a, a, a fine gentleman. To, to yeah, he was uh, talking about, uh, he was reading Angela's Ashes at the time and was talking about the book and what he thought of it. And he was very nice, very friendly. He was, I was, the company car that I was driving was a Taurus, a four-door Taurus. Uh, <laughs> only the best. Yeah. yeah. And, well, apparently, uh, in other amphitheaters, their thing was to just, you, you would bring your own car, so you would have, you know, some 20-something punk in a you tiny know. little Yugo carting around rock stars, and they thought, we, we don't want to do that. So it, he was sitting next to me in the front seat of a, of a uh, car, and he was very friendly and very nice, and, you know, they went and saw the throw doctor. I waited outside. They gave him the bill of health, and they went and started the tour. But uh, as far as the album goes, it's, you know, the songs that are not uh, on there, Have You Seen Me Lately, uh, Goodnight Elizabeth, Mercury, not singles, excellent songs. It all uh, sound like train song titles. <laughs> Damn it. I told you I was going to go Siskel on your ass. Well, if you liked the first album, if you ever listened to any of the first album, and you thought, hmm, I'd like a little bit more, but I'd like him to uh, throw in some punchier guitars and some uh, more rockin' tunes, and this is your album. <laughs> what, what, was that? what was that? Fun rocking tunes and rockin' fun tunes? What was that? What was that? I do remember that. some band that broke up for creative differences. Was that Jesus Jones and EMF? No, no, that was something different. God, I can't remember what it was, but it was some joke about some band that broke up for creative differences. Because one side wanted to do <laughs> fun rocking tunes, and the other side wanted to do rocking fun tunes. Oh, the creative differences. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I got kind of a long list here, so I want to kind of power through some of them. There, there are some that I starred though, because I wanted to spend a little bit more time on. And I think there are, as we kind of mentioned at the outset. There are sophomore albums that either at least don't drop off, so they at least uh, don't suck eggs. <laughs> so there's that. Then there's the other side of it, which are the second albums that kind of take the artist to a whole new level. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've got a mixture of both on my list, but I want to start with one that uh, it's a sophomore album that actually could be considered a debut album. And that's Little Earthquakes by Tori Amos. Oh, I'm considering this uh, her second album since she was she had a quote unquote band Why Can't Tori <laughs> Read, which was I guess a dance pop group. I don't think I ever heard of them. I just saw the album cover and laughed. And it was it was built around her. So she basically, I mean, her name was in the name of the band. Why can't Tori read? But with with a Y. Yeah. Now don't spell out the Y. The letter Y, and then can't <laughs> had no apostrophe, and it was spelled with a K. Oh. Just that, a. That just makes me want to vomit on sight. It was just considered. You know, <laughs> it was just considered terrible. It was just you know, vapid drivel. Just awful stuff that was appealing to whatever was hot at the time that it came out. Mm -hmm. And then in 1991. She completely reinvents herself as this um, feminist uh, solo piano chanteuse slash force of nature. Mm -hmm. And this is definitely one of those albums that uh, is, I'm sure I'm not the target demographic because <laughs> I was never a teenage girl or a lesbian. 
uh, which I think are probably the, the two audiences <laughs> that this album appeals to the most. But there's just something about this record. And uh, her and her piano, her acoustic piano, are at the core of, of every song. There are, except for the one that's a cappella, uh, and then there are, there are, you know, more full band kind of stuff, but just the uh, the power that she's able to, to ring out of her compositions, uh, the kind of, the, the melodies that, that creep up on you, um, and then the, the kind of the intangibles with, you know, being able to create, you know, a sense of foreboding and a sense of of place and fantasticalness and it's just this kind of uh, a mixture of the fantastical and the gauzy yet the very real and uh, just really kind of in your face just very an uncompromising uncompromising record Mm -hmm. and really you know put her on the map and erased the travesty that was (laughs) why can't Tori read I mean it would be almost like I don't know. It would be almost like if the monkeys turned into Leonard Cohen <laughs> within the span of two albums. You know, it's just really kind of amazeballs. Okay. Any thoughts on Tori? Well, you know, uh, I actually listened to her album that just came out, I don't know, sometime this year, Night of the Hunters. Mm-hmm. And she still is you know, uh, interesting and uncompromising. Uh, the, the new album was, uh, I don't know, something, something about her. It's supposed to be thematic and, and, you know, uh, it, it ends up being about her life and changing. And she has her like 10 year old daughter sing on it, who actually does quite well, who is a shape changing wolf. <laughs> you know, it's it, it to me. It's kind of like what you know. Tori Amos always was to me. Is I I don't always know where she's going or what she's doing, but it's usually something that's at least interesting. And uh, you know, what was uh, Silent all these years? Mm-hmm. That's still a. Uh, I, I, I don't know what the word. Uh, it's still a interesting song to listen to a good song to listen to yeah. after all these years and it's, it's a, a quiet power a mm-hmm. quiet power to that song. good way to describe it and i would say as her career went on she kind of little, little earthquakes is the most real to me the most real of her albums i think as she went on this is the only album of hers that that i own but i and as her career went on she kind of moved away from that and more into that realm of fantasy and wolf girls and and stuff like yes. that uh, but si- but the little earthquakes is it's just it's kind of it's a young woman uh, finding her voice and it's very powerful to listen to. I agree. Next, next on the hit parade, I have mm, Mastodon. <laughs> uh, Do they sound like their name? Sort of lumbering metal. Oh yeah, they're very well. You. Know, I think that's one of the things I, I thought was good about them is that they, uh, this was the album that I knew them from. I mean, they had a, an album before this that, um, I didn't know about and, uh, Rolling Stone reviewed this one. And, you know, I always like a review where whether or not they like it or didn't like it, that they explain it well enough that I can figure out whether I like it or not. That's what a good reviewer should do. That's Roger Ebert, and that's why I think he's the best reviewer on the planet, and most of them just suck. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's very heavy, um, and they do have some of the Cookie Monster growly vocals. But for the most part, it kind of sounds like um, like if uh, Kurt Cobain fronted a thrash metal band. Because he kind of, when he sings, he kind of sounds like Cobain's voice. And it has kind of this um, thundering, grunge-type feel to it. But then it definitely moves into a uh, harder, very rock song. And I think it's one of those things where if you like grunge or if you like metal, 
you know, you can definitely go into this album and go, oh, I find something in this that I like. Which is unusual because those are two worlds that like to think they've got nothing in common. Exactly. And I think that's why, you know, uh, the the band is popular. They keep putting out albums. Again, I just listened to their new album called The Hunter, and they keep going, they keep going in a more uh, mainstream direction. I heard this new record is supposed to be a lot more uh, streamlined. Yeah, and it the is. 11 minute um, songs are gone. It's more your four or five minute type stuff. Yeah, they've, they've definitely, uh, I think the, this album, Leviathan, had some sort of a theme to it that I don't really pretend to understand. And they've <laughs> gone. involving Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> well, yeah. Or David Bowie. Wasn't he in Leviathan? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. And they've done that through uh, more of their albums where they kind of had some sort of air and water and theme and all that. But. You don't really need to understand it just to enjoy a good rocking album. Um, I usually tend to focus more on the music than the lyrics on a lot of things. I, you know, if I if it's if it's melodic and interesting, and I don't always you know knock people off if their lyrics aren't quite as good. Yeah, <laughs> and so this one is definitely a a good. Um, well, I, I'd say it's a good stepping stone also if you wanted to get, if you were looking for something harder than, you know, if you were looking for something that might go a little harder than what you're always listening to, this one kind of bridges a gap between, you know, the Cookie Monster vocals uh, that a lot of death metal has and, you know, uh, heavy metal like, you know, a Van Halen or something. Or a priest, maybe. Or a priest. Priest. So, yeah, they definitely, you know, again, the better production, better um, better musicality, better everything on this one. They just stepped everything up, just like with the Counting Crows, took everything to the next level, and they actually hit it on everything. All right. Uh, kind of skipping around here. I got a kind of a cluster of records that most people are going to, are going to be aware of, and uh, like Candio by the Cars. <laughs> now the Cars' first album, uh, nine tracks, eight of them are still played right now on an album rock station somewhere. Yeah, uh, one of the greatest debut albums of all time, even though we've you know, all heard it to death, and so it's kind of suffered for that a little bit. But I mean, you just you can't take anything away from that. Is Candio that good? No. <laughs> <laughs> but was it good enough to continue the legacy? Exactly, yes. Yes, it was. And it's got really two of uh, my favorite Ben Orr sung songs in their history, which uh, is Let's Go, uh, is one of them, which was uh, a big single. And then It's All I Can Do, which mm. was not actually a single, but got a fair, a fair amount of album rock radio play. And then the title track, which... <coughs> is uh, probably one of the heaviest songs that they ever did. Uh, Elliot Easton really uh, lets it rip on that one, and it's got a, almost a, a hard rock kind of a feel to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that really those three songs uh, make it worthwhile, in my opinion. And so like I said, it's one of those albums that, uh, is it as good as the debut or better than the debut? Well, no. I mean, they <laughs> yeah. really probably never. There's touched. no way you're gonna go. <laughs> but it's all, yeah, it's it, it's also kind of an unfair because those, I mean those albums come along once in a career and they just happen to do it first. But it was good enough that that people didn't start scratching their heads going, well, "What the hell happened to these guys?" Yeah, well, yeah, they didn't break the formula. Yeah. You know, they it was basically it was more like you know, excellent album part two rather than, hey, let's try and you know. Add Zydeco. <laughs> <laughs> My God, can you imagine the cars with some accordion on it? Holy crap. <laughs> and then another quick hit uh, would be Rio by Duran Duran. Oh, yes. Um, I think that was really more a timing thing because when you listen to their first two albums, uh, they're pretty similar. It's not like they really made a, a huge... Sonic Leap. I guess maybe there's more guitars on Rio, but I think really it had a lot to do with the fact that MTV was hot and the videos gave them more exposure. So oh, yeah. even though it's not as though the 
self-titled debut album is a bad album by any stretch, and it's not that... I mean, I think Rio is the better album, but it's not like it's light years better. Uh, but I think Rio definitely counts as a no-sophomore slump because good record kind of ushered in the whole idea of the new romantics. Um, Would they have been as big without the uh, MTV influence? It's Could they have been big? I think obviously not. Because a lot of people say that Duran Duran is the first band that benefited from MTV acting as a national radio station. That because of the fact that MTV was so starved for content, that they would basically <laughs> play any video by anyone. A million times a day. <laughs> um, the radio stations were not playing Duran Duran. But... MTV was playing the shit out of Duran Duran. And that's what that's spurred what the album sales. That's what spurred the radio play. So it really all kind of started with MTV. So no, I, I really don't think so. But the funny thing is, you know, those videos, they were shot on film. And they had a kind of um, Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of look to them. Mm-hmm. And I remember back then when people were talking about, oh my God, these videos, you know, these are like the first videos that look like not just cheap ass promo clips. And, <laughs> you know, they're so freaking awesome. And I never really got it. I never really understood. This is through the eyes of a, of a young kid. But I never mm-hmm. understood at the time what the big freaking deal was about those videos. Now I look at it and they've got a lot more production value. Oh, yeah. But uh, they, they kind of look like mini movies. Mm-hmm. They made absolutely no freaking sense. <laughs> and that would be what uh, did Rio? Was that Hungry Like a Wolf? Um, yeah, Hungry Like the Wolf, Rio. Uh, were those the only videos off of there? Because then there was Save a Prayer, but I don't think that uh, I don't think Save a Prayer had a video. If it did, I'm not aware of it. Save a Prayer for me now. Yeah. That, hmm. Save it till the morning after. Nick is uh, feverishly trying to look up the track list. Spotify again. I don't think there were any other singles. Rio, My Own Way, Lonely in Your Nightmare, Hungry Like a Wolf, Hold Back the Rain, New Religion, Last Chance on the Stairway, Save a Prayer, and The Chauffeur. Yeah, that's true. So that's, that's kind of a, a quick hit. Another one from the same era is Get Lucky by Loverboy. <laughs> First record had, which was self-titled, had The Kid Is Hot Tonight and Turn Me Loose, which were two good songs. And then Get Lucky came out a year later and just blew the roof off the sucker. I mean, there were... Uh, yeah, you should look that one up because, I mean, there are a ton of not only uh, singles, but then uh, songs that got played on the radio anyway, even though they weren't singles. Because hmm. there's Working for the Weekend, When It's Over, Take It to the Top, Gangs in the Street. That really kind of took them to a, uh, to a whole different level. And so definitely not a, not a sophomore slump. And... Well, I, 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 other than Working for the Weekend, I'm sure I'd, I'd know them if I heard them, but I don't remember... Uh, songs just by their uh, titles. It's got the iconic cover with just the the, oh, red, yes. the red leather pants with the ass and the fingers crossed behind it. Yes. Which it gets really creepy when you realize that the only person who could fit into those pants is somebody's relative who was a 14-year-old girl. But then that's some guy's hand. Hmm. <laughs> a little creepy. That's, uh, yeah. A little creepy. <laughs> And then one I wanted to toss out to the floor is Open Up and Say Ah by Poison. Ooh, excellent. Because that's a second album that, in my mind, I mean, virtually eclipsed the first record. Oh, absolutely. But the first record really wasn't that bad. No. And and the first record had some singles. Oh, yeah. I mean, the cat dragged in and... Uh, the two big singles off that were Talk Dirty to Me, which I personally think is a terrible song, <laughs> and I Won't Forget You. Those were the two big, 
the two, I won't forget you. I was on that. The okay. Two, the two big singles. I want action. Then there was there's a song called Cry Tough. Oh yeah, I want action. I forgot about that. Yeah. The, the Talk Dirty to Me rewrite. That's on there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a bad record, yeah, you know, for what it is. But I don't know that I would have thought that they would have gone so big off of that. Yeah, you know, I guess maybe it was MTV and uh, um, Talk Dirty to Me because they were o- they were opening for Rat. They were opening for Rat. I love Rat. When they were supporting that first album. And then by the second album, they were headliners. So that's really kind of where it all changed for them. And there were still only three oh, singles man. off of that one. Fallen Angel, Every Rose. And Nothing But A Good Time. Wow. Oh, Your Mama Don't Dance. I don't really count that one, though. No. <coughs> you know, I, I haven't listened to this in so long, I don't really remember the uh, the non-singles off this album. Honestly, they're not all that memorable. I mean, this is definitely a hits plus filler job, but I think the first album was that, too. That was kind of the thing about Poison, is that when they got it right, I mean, the songs were just so good. <laughs> and then when they didn't, yeah. it was kind of like, wow, that's that's dull. I remember they had a, a live album that actually had, like, extra tracks on there, mm-hmm. and there was something called, like, Poison Jazz, which was actually not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the, the, that was a terrible, terrible song title. But uh, is that the No Looking Back Poison? Yeah, I think that was called no, no Looking Back. Boy, that was. So I think I think that open up and say ah probably would have to count as an album that you know, elevated them even. Oh even yeah, boy! Debut. I mean, it was not a continuation. Those singles were monstrous. That's hits. what made them superstars. Was that record? I mean, well, the first album definitely got him in the public eye, but it's this one where they really took off. Yes, being a being a kid of the MTV generation, you know, nothing but a good time. Every rose, I'm sick of every rose. I, I'm <laughs> I'm really sick of that song, but it it is a good song. I'll admit that. But you know, and I think Fallen Fall- Angel and yeah. wow, and Fallen Angel <laughs> Those are really, huge. you know, Fallen Angel is the redheaded stepchild in that cluster of singles because that's that's the the song that is not as well remembered as the other two and I really don't know why because I just think it's a a really awesome catchy song. It kind of reminds me of um, what happened to Ride the Wind off of the album that followed this. I think Ride the Wind is one of their best songs ever. Yes. And when you talk about that record, the only songs anybody wants to talk about are Unskinny Bop and Something to Believe in. <laughs> Unskinny Bop was a bore. It's terrible. <laughs> but uh, I saw them Gosh, it was probably seven, eight years ago at, at Blossom. Just went back to see him, uh, and they were... Yes, he is a, not still an usher at Blossom. <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I did love working there. You know, I loved working backstage the most. That was completely freaking awesome. Um, but I went back to see them, and it was like them and Warrant and somebody else. I think it was Bullet Boys maybe opened it for him or something was like that. Warrant without Janie Lane? No, I know it was. It was. He was on that tour. Yeah. Right? So yeah, I guess it was before he, <laughs> you know, gave up on it all. Yeah. Um, but they, I, I was so thrilled that the first song that they opened their set with was "Ride the Wind," which is, uh, I think, a phenomenally good song. Yeah, great song. And honestly, "Ride the Wind" is one of those songs that one of these punk pop bands could cover pretty easily. It That's kinda, very it true. It kind of lends itself to that. Three chords in the truth, kind of <laughs> rubber grip sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, they definitely should. That is an excellent song. <clears throat> That's kind of my cluster of uh, of a well-known second album. So I will return the floor to you. All right. Uh, I will go. Oh, well, I will go with Blake Baby's Sunburn. Blake Baby's. Um, the reason I knew him was because of Julian a- Hatfield, or is it Hatfield? Hatfield. Um, she's, uh, I don't know, some sort of, uh, indie girl from the, uh, mid nineties. She's a pre riot girl. Yeah, there you go. She's a pre riot girl. She's back when indie chicks could still be feminine. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, she was just, you know, she was very pop. Uh, her solo albums were very pop and she had a, uh, a rock album like in 95, that was the Julian Hatfield 3, which I think is a great album also. As far as I know, they only had one album. And this was um, something before all of that where she was in a band with another guy and another girl, or with a guy and another girl. And it was 
basically, um, I don't know, uh, angsty alt pop. <laughs> hmm. Was it lo-fi? Uh, no, no, it was very well produced. Um, I, I, I was, uh, I got this, there's a, uh, place in Kent, Ohio, where, yes, the Neil Young song was about that place, and there's a place called Spinmore Records that I've been shopping for forever. It's been there for a long time. Yeah, and, uh, uh, they had a, they had the album there, uh, Sunburn, and it was, it was, like, it was like in a cutout bin or something. I mean, just sort of like a, you know, $5, all these things are 5 bucks. And uh, I recognized her on there. And I was like, oh, I'll have to get this. And it is it is just a, a great, catchy um, guitar pop album. Does um, it come from a, women's, a woman's perspective mainly? Was she the yes, she's definitely the main uh, voice on the thing. And... Uh, the songs <laughs> are definitely a um, uh, women empowering songs. <laughs> um, is there a lot of mean boys suck, or is it basically you know like the first song on there is called "I'm Not Your Mother"? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the wrong girl for you. I'm not your mother. <laughs> and there's a lot of songs on there like that. I think the the song, and I think I've played this for you before. There's a song called "Girl in a Box." And it is the weirdest song, but it is so cute and catchy. It is definitely featuring her and then the the guy voice. Um, I've got a girl in a box. Um, She'll be a slut or a dirty little whore or the girl next door, or I'll cut off her head if I want to. I mean, it's a really weird... Like a boxing Helena kind of situation. Yeah, exactly. And I have no idea what it means, but uh, it's weird and catchy. And it's, you know, <laughs> it, it's definitely, uh, it, it's odd that the one song that really features the male side is about shoving a girl in a box. <laughs> and the rest of it are all songs like, I'm not your mother. So <laughs> yeah, okay. I got the picture. Do you have an idea where the name came from? Why they called themselves Blake Babies? I I, I know nothing about these. I don't even know who the third, you know, who the other girl is. Was it about thing. William Blake? I mean, was it, was it, I mean, I'm serious. <laughs> I, I'm just, I've always thought the name was creepy. Really? Right. Yeah. I just imagine babies like playing guitars, and it freaks me out. <laughs> and then why Blake? You know, just well, yeah. I I wonder if maybe the uh, the guy in this is you know maybe his maybe his name is Blake, and they're the babies. <laughs> good question are you looking it up <laughs> I am going to wiki it I mean you know I figure I have to it's just too too interesting not to we need that monkey boy we need <laughs> that PTI monkey boy hey so they we do can, have a wikipedia page you can do this stuff like that it's loaded it's very small hmm. yeah three mar- primary members were John Strom Frida Love and Julian Hatfield. Oh, and Evan Dando, who she played with a lot during the uh, 90s. The name Blake Babies was provided by the poet Allen Ginsberg. Following a reading at Harvard University, the group raised their hands and asked him to name their band. Well. And he smoked a lot of weed. Uh, apparently so. He did. So, okay, that's where Blake Babies come from. Hey, they're described as power pop. <laughs> Isn't everything. Carries on a discussion we had from our first episode about what is power pop. That's funny. You got another one? Yes, I do. And, oh, now this is going to be kind of a continuation of uh, from the last episode because I'm putting Motion City Soundtrack, Commit This Commemory. Which is the first, the first show we talked about underrated debut albums, and Nick had talked about Motion City soundtrack on that episode. And so now we're talking about uh, No Sophomore Slump, and so you think their second album also bears some discussion. Well, this one uh, to me is one of my favorite albums. Period. Uh, so I think the I, I I enjoyed the first album and I thought it was an excellent debut, but this one. Just knocks it out of the fucking park. Hmm. <laughs> uh, the uh, as as we mentioned previously in the last episode, uh, it has to be a breakup album because it has the the angstiness of a breakup album, and that is always a 
uh, measure of success, you know. Uh, but it, it goes from um, from uh, from uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I do not know. From a ballady uh, through some part of it to upbeat and catchy, uh, it's always uh, lyrically interesting. It's uh, fun to sing along to. It's really uh, it's so catchy and so clever and so interesting. And I think you know all the lyrics are great. It's just an unending, catchy power pop album. <laughs> what, the, what year did this come out? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I know they're still putting out albums. Um, was it in the last few years? I'd say it must have been maybe uh, 2005. Okay. Oh, gosh. Because yeah, one thing we haven't really talked too much about... Uh, because I guess it's been a little bit off topic, though, is about how production, production chain, production styles have evolved over the years. And I've been talking on Facebook with some people about this, about how the rise of the MP3 has really uh, impacted production for the worse. And when I think about bands, newer bands that are putting out records now, uh, they're also freaking compressed. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if a lot of people even understand what compression is, but. It bugs me so much that there there are some things that I can't listen to, even though they might be musically okay, just because the compression bothers my ears so much. And you know what compression is is because the MP3 is a is a uh, inferior sound file and harder to hear nuance for uh, most most of the new music that's being produced today. After they're done, you know, getting the track all mixed and everything they run it through some kind of process that takes the sound wave and eliminates a lot of the dynamics so you don't have the high highs and the low lows it kind of levels everything off so it all sort of sounds at the same frequency or the same level yeah and it results in a sound that is very tinny and sounds very mechanical it doesn't really sound like human beings are playing instruments it just sounds like noises are sort of emanating from somewhere so are you? I guess I'm asking. Do they sound like that to you? To me, not at all. I think they're incredibly dynamic. Um, I've heard that. I've heard that issue a lot, and I, I don't notice it as much. To me, uh, it's you know maybe my crappy hearing from all those loud bands, but uh, you know uh, I, I I don't notice. Uh, I understand the concept, and I, I can get that, but I don't really, I guess, unless I'm sitting down and hearing the comparison between the two, I don't really notice it. I really notice it uh, in an artist who I've been listening to for a long time, because I'm so used to how his records used to sound. A lot of the artists that I listen to have not you know, crossed over to the dark side, but one in particular who has is Bruce Springsteen. And... Uh, his last three albums have been produced by this guy named Brendan O'Brien and he's really Mm -hmm. modernized the sound and everything is just so freaking compressed so if anybody out there has bought like um, even The Rising but uh, like Magic by Springsteen or uh, Working on a Dream uh, you'll know what I'm talking about especially Mm. Magic put on Magic listen to the opening strains of Radio Nowhere and wonder why it doesn't sound like Bruce that's compression right there Hmm, interesting. Not to go off on a rant here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see, we're hitting 45. Once again, all right. You got some time. Breakup albums. We had mentioned this in the first episode about how breakups make for great albums. Hell yeah. My favorite breakup album of all time. Yes, I think it's even better than Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. Ooh. Well, my vote for the best pop rock breakup album of all time is also a no sophomore slump album that is A View from Third Street by Jude Cole. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had put out an album in 1987 that was a lot more contemporary at the time, pop oriented. I think it was kind of aiming for top 40. By the time uh, A View from Third Street 
came out in 1990, he had really kind of repositioned himself, I think, toward the adult contemporary market, which is a term that I think scares a lot of people off because they think automatically, you know, middle of the road and all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> it's a 10-song album. Another one of those albums where every song is great. A lot of song craft. He's, a, he's an excellent songwriter. The, uh, there were a couple of minor hits off of this one. The first one was a song called Baby It's Tonight <laughs> that I think a lot of people remember fondly. Uh, then there was another one called Time for Letting Go. But this, what is unique about this album is that, yes, it is obviously a breakup album. <laughs> the eight songs in the middle are all right down the line about a relationship that is in trouble. This is not one of those records that like mixes love songs with breakup songs, which I find kind of jarring. Yeah. As much as I love Luther Vandross, he does that a lot on his albums. He'll have an I Love You song with a Why Do You Hurt Me So song right back to back. <laughs> I love you. Why do you hurt me? I love you. Why do you hurt me? <laughs> right. This album's not like that. The eight songs in the middle are all about just emotional pain. But then the first song and the last song are more about worldly concerns. And they, hmm. they don't really get specific as far as you know, protesting specific things that might have been going on in the world at the time they were written, but they're more just about uh, finding your place within the world. Hmm. And what I love about that as a framing device, and in my opinion it was on purpose, but I don't know for sure if it was, is that it really helps demonstrate how when your relationship is on the rocks, you start questioning everything. And so it really does a great job of not only being a good breakup album, but then providing some context for how that infects every aspect of your life. <laughs> and it's just a, a remarkable album. Uh, great crystalline production. Um, it reminds me a lot of some of my favorite Lindsey Buckingham solo records. <laughs> and he kind of looks a little bit like Lindsey on the cover. <laughs> it's funny because this record came out just a few years after Lindsay left Fleetwood Mac, I remember thinking at the time, my God, if this guy joined Fleetwood Mac, that Ooh. would really be a combo. Because, you know, by then the Mac was very much firmly ensconced as kind of the, you know, poster boys and girls for adult contemporary. Yeah. I think he would have fit in great. Uh, but just a, a great album to listen to. I mean, it sounds great. It's produced well. Uh, the songs are well written. And uh, I actually had written about this on my Facebook page. And... You know, when when you yourself are going through a breakup and you, every song on the radio is about you, <laughs> this is the kind of album that if you're going through a breakup and you're listening to it, you'll think that Jude Cole is hiding in your closet writing songs <laughs> about you. <laughs> so it's uh, Jude Cole of You From Third Street, uh, one of my favorite albums of all time and uh, highly, highly recommended. And a great breakup album, so always look for the breakup albums. Do I have another one? I don't. You don't? Huh. Well, let's see. I've got uh, Van Halen 2, which Van Halen 2, I think, is a lot like Candy O. Because mm. when... Because Van Halen... Continuing the excellent formula. Van Halen 1 is another one of those once-in-a-career albums. I mean, it's just... It's one of the all-time classic debut albums and then Van Halen 2 came out and was it that good? No. Of course it wasn't <laughs> that good. But it had enough high points. Um, Dance the Night Away which is really one of my favorite Van Halen songs of all time. Yeah. And Beautiful Girls <laughs> is on there and their cover oh, yeah. of uh, You're No Good is on there. So there's just enough high points on that record that uh, I think it's, a, it's an excellent uh, second album and avoids the sophomore slump. And Another one I think is interesting is High and Dry by Def Leppard. Boy, I don't know. I haven't listened to that in forever. Because you know, Def Leppard's first album was a song called On Through the Night mm -hmm. that had a very, I mean, such a minor hit, I'm not even sure it's fair to call it a hit, called Hello America. <laughs> then High and Dry came out and didn't really do a whole lot. People remember bringing on the heartbreak only because it was re-released after Pyromania since it took him so freaking long to put out Hysteria. They started, like, raiding the back catalog just to kind of keep him in the public eye. So, Clever. You know, High and Dry, it's not even an album that I own, and it, it's, it's a fine album. But the thing that I think is unique about it 
is the fact that you know they exploded with Pyromania, which was their third album. Why did they explode with that one? And how unusual it is now that a band actually gets three chances. <laughs> That's very true. To set the world on fire. Yeah, because they were they had to have been on a major label, right? They were. They were. So yeah, they who, were who ever gets three three albums on a major label before they hit? And On Through the Night came out in 80 or 81. Um, High and Dry was 82. Was there any big songs off of uh, the first one? Just Hello America. Well, which isn't one. a big song at all. <laughs> yeah. So that that's on my list just because the fact that it was good enough to give them a shot at number three, which is then <laughs> when the record label really started reaping some dividends. Yeah. And, and then pour some sugar on me, made everyone rich. <laughs> it certainly did. Uh, how are we doing on time? Uh, 50, 51. 51, so we do have more time to prattle on. Yes. Well, here's an interesting go, go. one. Here's one that is really cheating. Um, For the Love of Strange Medicine by Steve Perry. <laughs> and is that a second album? That's his second solo album. Oh, yeah, because the other one was... Uh, Street Talk. Yeah, okay. There you go. And so even though Steve Perry was a known quantity from Journey before Street Talk ever came out in the uh, in the mid-'80s, uh, by the time For the Love of Strange Medicine came out in 93, uh, let's see, what was the last record that uh, that the band had made together? Was that... Was that front? Oh, Raised on Radio. Raised on Radio, right? Raised on Radio in 86. And then he had left the band, and he hadn't he hadn't done squat since '86. So '93 was when "For the Love of Strange Medicine" came out. It was almost like his comeback record. And uh, what's the first track called? "You Better Wait." Yep. And that got a that got a slew of play on the album rock stations. I don't even know if you remember it though. I I don't. I was trying to remember. I I I remember you buying the album, but I don't really remember anything about it. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because here, 18 years later, I still listen to this album. <laughs> really? I listen to it more than Street Talk. <laughs> uh, I've listened to it more than any Journey album other than Escape. Wow. And I just think it's a, a great, great second album. So is it kind of like the, the best album Journey never made, or does it really just sound like something different? It does. It's, it sounds like something really different because, you know, by this point, because, uh, you know, Steve hasn't been very active, and even though he hasn't come out and said it, uh, he's made hints over the years about fearing for his voice because you know, he just always sang with such abandon and such power. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of a fear that as he's aged, he can't really sound like Steve Perry anymore. And if you notice, on he did it on Trial by Fire, the Journey Reunion album, and this is where it starts. He's doing so, he's he's doing something different with his microphone. He's hmm. he's doing some kind of different echo settings or something on his mic so that he doesn't have to put as much air behind it. Hmm. And you can tell with this album that that's what he's doing. And so he sounds a little different. And and the rest of the production, you don't have Neil shown, which as I've listened to subsequent Journey albums that have Neil that don't have Steve, you see how integral Neil is to the Journey sound because of his melodic guitar playing. Yeah. So you're you're lo you're missing that on this record. You don't have those great soaring lyrical Neil Sean uh, guitar lines, uh, and it, it all sounds a lot a lot drier. I guess the production of it, which mm. I know doesn't sound very attractive, <laughs> uh, but somehow it just works. It probably helps that I'm a big Steve Perry fan. Yeah. But like the first four or five songs on this album, it's just one after another of great song, great song, great song. And then there's not a bad song on it. And then the very last song on here, which is called Anyway, is actually his uh, <laughs> musical apology to the other guys in Journey. And it's actually that song that prompted them to get back together and record Trial by Fire. Really? And then, of course, you know, Steve took a shit on him again, and they broke up for good. But anyway, uh, it kind of captures a moment in time where... Yeah, but then they found the that guy from Taiwan or something. <laughs> Philippines, yeah. Yeah, Philippines. He sounds good. Have you have you listened to their uh, the, the newer Journey stuff? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Revelation, which was the first one with uh, Arnel Pineda, who is the, Philippine, uh, it, the Filipino guy... Uh, the first track on that album, I love uh, something. I can't remember what the name of it is, but yeah, I've got you better wait in my head now. So I'm trying to think of it. Never walk away. Yeah, 
Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Revelation is the best Journey album since Escape. Wow. It's better than Frontiers. It's better than Raced on Radio. It's better than Trial by Fire. It's an awesome record, and, and they're really uh, they're a re-energized band now because Arnell sounds enough like Steve that he can pull off uh, the Steve stuff without embarrassing himself, but he sounds different enough that he gives him a new sound. He's, he's a lot bluesier. He's a lot bluesier than, than Steve Perry because, you know, Steve Perry drew a lot of his inspiration uh, from Sam Cooke and has more of like a, a Motown or a soul kind of a uh, background to his vocal styling. <laughs> Whereas Arnell was raised on arena rock, you know, the type of music that Steve Perry helped invent. Yeah. And so his, his inspiration is from that, and probably a little bit of Robert Plant, I would imagine. Hmm. And so it's, just, it's, it's a bluesier style of singing. And yeah, their new stuff is fantastic. Because, I mean, I, I'm a huge Steve Perry fan, and for the longest time I've kind of, I was resentful at this rotating cast <laughs> of... I mean, my God, when, Steve when, Gary. when their first replacement oh. singer is named Steve Gary, not Steve Perry, you're like, oh, just shut up. <laughs> uh, and then what, Jeff Scott Soto? <laughs> yeah. What the hell is a Jeff Scott Soto? <laughs> uh, but this guy, um, Arnel Pineda, he's, he's made me a believer again. And really, it, it sounds like Steve Perry's never going to record again. Uh, I read an interview with him that was conducted in January of this year where he claims that he's got starts of 50 songs. I don't buy it. I'll believe it when I see it. Hmm. He's in his 60s now. He's a big baseball fan. Apparently he's at uh, San Francisco Giants games a lot. Really? And uh, has cats and has a girlfriend, <laughs> and that's pretty much his life. And I well, when you said he has cats, I was not expecting the next <laughs> one. The girlfriend. <laughs> And so I, th- I think, you know, our only way to enjoy Steve Perry is to listen to the music he's left behind for us. Hmm. And so and when you're doing that, don't ignore his second solo album <laughs> for the exactly. love of Strange Medicine. I just thought of something that I can add into the uh, into this that I didn't have written down, but for Rat... Uh, Actually, it would have been Dancing Undercover. Well, and technically, there's a technicality in there because they had an album that was just called Rat, but I think it was like independently released, and I can't even find information about I it. i got to go Cisco on your ass again. It, you, it went Rat, Out of the Cellar, Invasion of Your Privacy, Dancing Undercover. So that's their fourth album. Really? I would have given you Invasion of Your Privacy since Out of the Cellar was technically their first album in wide release, even though it was their third album overall. I can't spot you dancing undercover though. That is number four. Wow. Number three at the earliest. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Well, I guess I, I guess somehow I must have gone out of order because, wow, I never really listened to Invasion of Your Privacy. Oh. So you can still talk. You can still talk about it, but just don't mislead people into thinking that it's their second (laughs) album. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) it's an excellent album. Well, I guess I could say I could talk about out of the cellar, yeah. Because if if Rat was there, you know, but I can't really say that I've I, I know where they came from with the original Rat because I've never heard it. So and apparently it's hard to hear. Because, uh, it was one of those things. It was a six song EP, and when Out of the Cellar hit big, their label bought it and reissued it, but remixed it. And apparently, it's the remix job they did on it is completely different. So I guess the independent six-track EP that they put out was only ever put out on vinyl, was never reissued on CD, and it now commands you know, $150, $200 prices. So unless somebody's uploaded the original mixes to YouTube, it's going to be hard to hear what it actually sounded like. Oh, that's too bad, because I'd love to hear that. I, I, I love Rat. I think they're a, uh, a great... Um, I don't know, hair metal band, I guess, you know, I mean. Definitely, definitely, I mean, that's, they, they were one of the inventors of it. Yeah, I guess that's true. They they were, uh, everyone knows Round and Round, and Milton Berle in their video. <laughs> Thankfully keeping his pants on. <laughs> well, you know, it's a good time to show whether or not the rumor's true. <laughs> um, but, boy, 
Yeah, I, I was just listening to Out of the Cellar recently. I mean, I don't think there's a bad song on that entire album. Uh, Wanted Man, She Wants Money, Lack of Information, Back for More. I mean, that is a top-to-bottom phenomenal album. And, and Round and Round is, is one of those songs that if you haven't heard it in a while, uh, look it up and play it again, and you'll be surprised at how well it holds up. Yeah, and boy, to go from, you know, from a six-song six EP and then come in there and nail and out of the park, you know, round and round, and boy, they, they, that's a pretty good, that's definitely not slumping. And I, let me just say that they're, the rest of their catalog, although I can't speak for Invasion of the Privacy because that's apparently the only one I've never listened to, but Dancing Undercover, even when they reformed and put out... What was, that, uh, what was their first comeback album? Rat, self-titled. And that had, that had three singles off of it, right? Was yeah, oh yeah, the Over the Edge, Live for Today, I think was Oh, you're doing, the, you're doing the second comeback. I'm oh, talking about the first comeback that came out like in 91 or 92. Was it called Detonator? Oh, detonator! Oh, 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 yeah. That, that, my friend, that's an album. Absolutely, you're completely right. Uh, there's two songs on there. Uh, oh, heads I win, tails you lose, all or nothing. Uh, give yourself away, and what was the other one? One step away. They are both. Um, who is the? Uh, who is that hit maker? Guy who was like Desmond, Nero- Child. Desmond Child. There you go. He he had a, he was all over this album. Yes. And uh, I, I can't say that it was a bad thing because they really got some incredibly catchy songs uh, out of this. I mean, really. Did it ever do anything though? I mean, shame, shame, shame. I think they had That's a video what for I was that. Trying to think of instead of gimme, 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 shame, shame, shame. <laughs> Yeah, I remember uh, one of the local album rock stations. They they played about three songs off of that, and I was really, really impressed. Because, yeah, I mean they were just they were damn good. They did not embarrass themselves at all. And this this came out. It was it still was pre grunge, wasn't it? It was 1990. Yeah, so it was, was pre grunge. <laughs> it was right on the edge. And I think that's probably what killed the comeback. But it was it was really yeah. a solid solid record. And they've, as far as I know, they've still been. Yeah, they put out something back in 2010. I'm not and sure who's left anymore. Well, I don't think they ever made a record without Piercy. Yeah, I don't think so either. But I mean, I th- they were touring with somebody who wasn't oh, they Piercy. Were? Yes, there was, and I'm, I, I don't know if they ever actually put out an album with him, but they put out one in '99, which was an excellent comeback. Uh, Over the Edge, Live for Today were two really great songs. This came out in '99. This mm-hmm. is the yellow cover. This is the self-titled you were talking right. about. Right, and that's if you ever if you ever do searches like I would do to try and find the EP song, you always end up with that one. Now, is this? Uh, they're not trying to do rap rock, are they? Oh no, because '99. That is when all of the hair metal bands that tried to make oh. a comeback tried to do rap rock methods of mayhem. Tommy <laughs> Lee. <laughs> well, you remember all the hair metal bands. That were trying to be alternative. alternative. Generation Swine oh, and Belly God. to Belly by Warren. Oh my <laughs> God. Well, even like, uh, who was that? Um, Fly to the Angels. Uh, Mark Slaughter? Yeah, Slaughter. They did that too. And one of the guys Slaughter I was working with. put out with, an industrial album? Well, they put out, well, yeah, it was it was an alt rock. You're kidding me. Semi industrial, yeah. Thank yes. God I missed that one. Oh, yeah. The, and, but. The uh, one of the guys I worked with at Blockbuster Music loved them, and when this album came out, he kept playing it over and over. Oh and I'm God. like, oh come on! You know, one <laughs> thing you can say about it's Kip, tragic. One thing you can say about Kip Winger, okay, he might not be that talented, <laughs> he may have gotten fat, but at least he went acoustic, not alternative. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I, I got to see if they have the uh, the picture for the cover of that because it sucked. Uh, Wow, hot slaughtered. Revolution. There you go. Oh god. It doesn't have like clowns on it, does it? Like I can unplug it there. <sighs> oh jeez. <laughs> They're doing like the stylized lettering and Yeah, and it's all, you know, kind of like that washed out red and blue and it's just Read me some of the other song titles, because so far those song titles there don't sound too bad. But usually they had like, you know, one or two titles where you could tell they were trying too hard. 
Stuck on you. Hard to say goodbye. Guck. Revolution. Guck. There Guck. you go. There it is. Right there. <laughs> Guck. <laughs> Ad majorum de gorium. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, did they try and put Gregorian chants in there? That's... The Benzedrine monks. Of wow. Uh, You're my everything. Guck. Guck. Well, this has completely gone off the rails. I think it's time to uh, time to wrap this up. So, thanks for listening to the second podcast. Uh, we have more great stuff uh, coming your way. Don't forget to visit our blog, mr80s.wordpress.com. That's m-i-s-t-e-r-8-0-s.wordpress.com. Uh, visit us on Facebook, mr80s, m-i-s-t-e-r-8-0-s. Contact us at mr80s at rocketmail.com. And good night, J.T. Walsh, wherever you are.